All right, everybody, welcome back. Another episode of Difficult Conversations by Supply the Why. Tonight we have a very special show. We're going to get a chance to peek behind the curtain of the criminal justice world. And we're going to get to talk a little bit about what the bail process looks like and kind of like the whys of the bail process. So I have a very special guest tonight. I want to welcome Detective Danny Baba. He is about a eight-year police veteran. Is that correct, Danny? Yes. All right. And what makes him unique is that he worked as a liaison with the police department through the courts as an intake specialist. So what I'm going to ask you first, Danny, is what made you decide to change hats and become a police officer? And then what exactly is an intake bureau specialist? Sure. So prior to becoming a police officer up here in Massachusetts, I worked in New York City uh, in the borough of Queens, so the Queens County District Attorney's Office. And one of the things that's very important to know about criminal justice is that criminal justice, while it's national, is really, really, really localized. So the way that things happen in New York City is going to be different than the way things happen in Massachusetts, which is going to be different from the way it happens in Minnesota and everywhere else across the country. Uh, but in Queens specifically, New York City is obviously very busy. Um, the borough of Queens alone on an average year processes between 95,000 and 115,000 criminal arrests. Because of that, the office is open 24-7, 365, and at least part of courts where the defendant is arraigned, that is open at least until midnight and most sessions run overnight as well. Uh, so the way that things happened in Queens, yeah, it's, it's very, very busy. And to avoid court having to be, you know, a, you know, a very long process, they try to run it on weekends and at nights to speed up the process. So what happened in the intake bureau where I worked is a case would, a case, and by a case, I mean a criminal arrest would be assigned to an investigator or a trial preparation assistant. That was my position in the office. And the vast majority of cases from the borough of Queens and from the city of New York in general came from the NYPD. There are other law enforcement agencies that work in the city that make arrests and send cases to the district attorney's office, but the overwhelming majority came from the NYPD. So that case, a new arrest would get assigned to an investigator. We would call the police officer to interview the police officer about the facts of the case. Then we'd conduct our own investigation. We would interview the victim if it had a victim. We would interview any witnesses. And then from our determination after speaking to the police officer, the victims, the witnesses, and anybody else that we felt necessary, we could have several options. We could decide to decline to prosecute the case entirely, which means it could happen for a number of different reasons, but it means the district attorney's office was not gonna prosecute the case. And if the defendant had been arrested, he would be immediately released from custody. Very, very rare for that process to happen. It practically never happened. In my experience of you know thousands of cases in Queens, we only declined to prosecute you know less than 1% of the cases that came to us. So that's very rare. Let me ask you this, Danny. What, what's the point of the concurrent investigation? Like, so there'd be the police investigation, and then you would do your investigation. What what's it seems like duplicitous, you know. It sort of does. But the reason that it did is because ultimately I would be reporting to an assistant district attorney and it got an attorney involved in the process very, very early on. Whereas in Massachusetts, a, uh, an assistant district attorney doesn't see a criminal case up until the point that the defendant is being arraigned. So mm -hmm. they don't really get to pick and choose 
what they want to prosecute and what the charges should or shouldn't be. They're basically stuck with whatever the police department thinks is appropriate, which is usually correct. But police officers are not attorneys. And in New York City, we dealt with tens of thousands of police officers, many of whom did a fantastic job, but occasionally there were charges that would be just completely inappropriate or probable cause that wasn't as strong as it should have been. And this gave an attorney the chance to review everything before a defendant was actually arranged. So that way an attorney had already looked at this case and said, yes, there's probable cause here. Yes, this case is prosecutable. Whereas it wasn't, you know, in Massachusetts, it's largely the police officer who's applying for that complaint and making that decision on his or her own, which normally is fine, but it's always better to have an attorney review your work as well. And Queens, that's what we did. All right. That makes perfect sense. And for those of you that are watching, uh, probable cause is the standard in which it takes to make an arrest, which basically means more likely than not, you have what it takes to, to you have the elements of, of a crime to make an arrest. So if I had to put a percentage on it, we're talking 51% likely all right, right. out of 100%, right? Okay. So tell me a little bit about the makeup of New York. So, I mean, I don't travel much. When I think of New York, I think of it's just one big all-encompassing thing. So is Queens right. open than Bronx? Is, is How's that work? Yeah. So New York City is very interesting in that the city is bigger than the individual counties. Uh, it's not common in the United States for that to be the case. But New York City is comprised of five individual boroughs, that being Queens, Brooklyn, Staten Island, Manhattan, and the Bronx. Each of those boroughs are individual counties. So they each have their own district attorney's office, their own court system. So if, you know, even an, an NYPD officer who made an arrest in Brooklyn could not then take that criminal case to Queens because it's a separate county. So even though he's a city or he's a city police officer in both boroughs and both counties, the case had to be prosecuted in the borough where it actually occurred. And that's what makes New York kind of unique from other cities. The counties are actually smaller than the city itself. That's that's very different. I, right. I, in my head, I'm trying to figure out how I would categorize it. It's kind of like a cross between a, a state trooper and a sheriff is what it sounds like. Right. Because you have jurisdiction in individual, your, your legal jurisdiction to make arrests is citywide, but you have to prosecute it in the area that it occurred. And, you know, the New York City being as complicated as it is, Brooklyn and Queens share a border, both of which are on Long Island. A lot of times you didn't actually know where you were until a physical arrest had been made. So you you're a, or a pursuit happens that started in Queens and ended in Brooklyn. You could have crimes in one city that spanned two counties and had to be prosecuted in two separate counties. That well, yeah, that, it, it wasn't the most efficient way. Right. You know, if it was simple, then you know, then everybody would be doing it, I guess. Exactly. So how has that experience helped you on the job as a police officer? Sure. So I think the most important thing for me, having worked in a district attorney's office and now being a police officer, is when you train to become a police officer, you learn how to be a police officer. You don't train to prosecute cases and to gather evidence and everything sufficient to prosecute a case because there are a million other things that police officers do besides criminal arrests. Any police officer can tell you criminal arrests accounts for such a small part of your day-to-day -day life, your day-to-day -day operations. People think that we're out making arrests all day, every day. But the truth is, even in a busy jurisdiction, 
you're not making arrests all that often. You're not putting handcuffs on people all that often as an average patrol officer. So the training to become a police officer doesn't necessarily get you to that point where you're supplying cases to the district attorney's office that gives the DA's office everything they need to do their job because they're only dealing with the criminal arrests. They're not dealing with the traffic accidents and the noise complaints and everything else that police officers deal with every day. So the most important thing for me, having worked in the DA's office, is understanding what the DA's office needs from police departments to successfully do their job because it's not something that's really trained. And I think the average police officer really doesn't know what the district attorney's office is going to do and what police officers can do to make their job easier and to get better outcomes. With that said, tell us a little bit in layman's term, district attorney's office. I mean, a lot of people see it when they watch their TV shows, but I I get that a lot of people don't know exactly what that means and what the expectation is when something arrives at the district attorney's office. That's a great question because it's one of those things people really don't know much about what a district attorney is. A district attorney, um, at least in Massachusetts and in every jurisdiction that I know of, he's an elected, he or she is an elected official who is responsible for prosecuting all crimes in that county. Um, so in Queens, the district attorney is responsible for prosecuting all crimes in Queen. But by and large, the district attorney is, you know, I don't want to say a figurehead, but the district attorney is not the one who's actually prosecuting cases. You know, in Queens um, and where I work currently now in Norfolk County, the district attorney sets policy, makes hires, but the assistant district attorneys are the ones who are actually doing the work of the attorney's office. So in Queens, there were several hundred assistant district attorneys. Those were the ones who were actually conducting the investigations and prosecuting cases. And in Norfolk County, where I currently work, it's a smaller office, but there's still a number of assistant district attorneys who are the ones responsible for the arraignment, everything that happens pre-trial, and ultimately getting dispositions and going to trial if that's what's necessary. But the district attorney is the one who ultimately sets the law enforcement priorities of that county because they're the ones that are deciding what cases to prosecute, what cases they don't prosecute, and kind of the trajectory of those cases while they're in court pending. All right. So hopefully that helps at home put a little meat on the bones of what exactly the district attorney's role is and why it's vital in the whole cog of, of the criminal justice world. All right. So let's get to current events. A lot of talk right now about bail. So I'm going to have you, as simply as you can, just kind of explain what seems to be almost like a like a very convoluted and and thick explanation of what the bail process is and how it works. So try to try to bring us all in and help help us understand what the bail process is and what are the factors that influence the bail process. Sure. So I'll I'll speak mostly about bail as it happens in Massachusetts because that's where I'm currently working. And like I said earlier, criminal justice is such a local issue bail, another criminal justice issue, is highly, highly variable depending on where you are in this country. So I'll speak most about Massachusetts, and if there are some general questions about bail and other areas, I can do my best to try to fill in the gaps there as well. But in Massachusetts, bail has one purpose and one purpose only. Bail is the amount of money that is required to ensure that a defendant appears at all future court dates. 
nothing else. So it's all about, will this person come back to court or not? It's not about, is this person dangerous? It's not about, is this person going to commit more crime? It's solely, if I let this person out of court today, will he show up when I order him back to court? And when I say, when I order him back to court, when the judge orders him back to court on his next court date. That is the purpose of bail in Massachusetts. It's the only purpose of bail in theory. But there's obviously a human element that goes into it that makes it a little more complicated than, is this person going to show up to court or is he not? All right, so just to recap really quick, so there's nothing punitive about bail, right, in theory. Exactly. The point of bail is not to punish somebody and keep them locked up before their trial. However, obviously, being locked up, if you ask the person locked up, sure as hell feels like punishment, even if you haven't been convicted. So it's kind of a difference without a distinction type thing. Um, But the purpose is not to punish them or not to prevent them from committing more crime. The purpose is to make sure that they come back to court. And obviously, if they're held in custody, they'll come back to court because the sheriff is responsible for bringing them to and from court for their appearances. So let me ask you this. Do people get different bail amounts for the same crime? Have you seen it? And is there some sort of sheet? Like, how how do the people, like, who comes out and determines the bail when someone's arrested? Sure. So to answer your first question, yes, you can have two offenders charged with the exact same crime who can end up with wildly different bails. And it's perfectly legal and it's perfectly reasonable under the circumstances normally. So what happens is in Massachusetts, there's two times that bail can be set in most cases. The first time bail is going to be set is if you're arrested after hours, that meaning when court's not open. So it could be after 4 p.m. on a weekday or any time on a weekend. What happens in that instance is you call a clerk magistrate and you explain to the clerk magistrate the facts of the case, and then you'll explain to the clerk magistrate uh, what the defendant's previous criminal record is, if the defendant has previously defaulted, and when I say defaulted, that means not shown up to court when ordered, and then the clerk magistrate will decide based on what the charges are, based on the defendant's record, and based on how many times the defendant has failed to show up for court in the past, they'll set a bail amount, but that bail only is good until the defendant goes to court. So if that happens on a Tuesday night at six o'clock, that bail is only in effect until Wednesday morning when the defendant is brought to court. Now, at that time, the, the true bail, so to speak, will be set. And the way that that happens is through a bail request and a bail argument and hearing in front of the judge. So hypothetically, if bail had been posted at the police station the night before and the defendant came to court the next morning, the district attorney's office kind of has a hard argument to make that bail should be more than what the magistrate said because this person posted that bail and then came to court. court. And knowing that the only purpose of bail is to make sure that they come to court, well, this person has just proven reliable in that they came to court after posting the bail. So that's the first time that bail is set. That's a that's a fantastic explanation. I've been in this line of work for 16 years. I've never had anybody quite break it down um, to, to to that simple level that you just did there. Because I'm telling you right now, with everything that's going on, obviously I'm bringing this up because of, you know we're all following what happened in Milwaukee with um, with Derek Chauvin. Uh, people are upset, right? And people want to know why he you know, like I've heard crazy things like he is out on bail because people are trying to hook him up and do him a favor 
and people, you know, they, they want to make him comfortable. So they didn't want him to have, be in jail anymore. They make it sound like the million dollar bail, which you and I know is a gargantuan number. That's a huge number. Right. Like we don't see million dollar bails in Massachusetts. Correct. So, Correct. What are your thoughts on that? And do you think the system needs to be adjusted at all? So Derek Chauvin's situation is kind of unique. Uh, actually, it's not kind of unique. It's incredibly unique for a number of reasons. But I'm not overly familiar with the way bail works in um, different jurisdictions other than Massachusetts. But I can tell you, whereas in Massachusetts, bail is supposed to solely be about whether or not the person comes to court. In other jurisdictions, in other states, bail is about more than just will somebody come to court. It's a kind of a hybrid. It's a combination of many factors, including is this person dangerous? Is this person likely to commit more crime? Is this person likely to show up for court when I release them? And that's where you come up with these large numbers in other jurisdictions. So in Derek Chauvin's case, a million dollars is obviously a massive amount of money. A million dollars is huge. And that bail is likely, that number is likely the result of a number of factors, including is this person going to come to court? Is this person likely to commit more crime while he's out? And is this person a danger to society? And with Derek Chauvin, without picking sides or without trying to be anything other than objective, is he likely to come to court? The answer is yes. He's very likely to appear at future court dates. With the amount of media attention this case has received, it would be practically impossible for Derek Chauvin to not continue to show up for his court dates. So in that aspect, yes, bail is warranted because it's a serious case and he's looking at serious time if convicted, but he's likely to show up for all future court dates. So now you have to worry about the other factors of is this person a danger to society and is this person likely to commit more crime? With Derek Chauvin being a police officer or a former police officer, those are very not clear cut issues. The crime that he's charged with was a crime that occurred during the performance of his duties. So you have to look at it from a judge's perspective of Yes, he's being charged with murder, but is this a murder that occurred because he truly went out to commit a murder or because he made a horrible set of choices and decisions while he was in the performance of his job? And I think the judge carefully considered that and said, absolutely, he needs to be held accountable. But is this person likely to commit murder, not being a police officer anymore and being free on bail? And the judge, in my opinion, rightly said, it's very unlikely that he's going to commit more violent crime or commit any more crime while he's out on bail. So I know the optics of it are awful. The optics are awful. He's being charged with the same exact crime that other defendants have been held without bail on. However, people are losing their mind, Danny. What's that? People are losing their mind. It's- I know they are. And, and rightfully so, because, you know, what he's accused of doing is reprehensible and it's indefendable. But for the purpose of bail and remembering that just like any other defendant, he has a presumption of innocence before he's proven guilty. Just like any defendant who goes to court today, he is an innocent man. He's innocent. We've all seen what we've seen. We know what the facts of the case are, but legally speaking, he's innocent and therefore he's entitled to bail. And in bail consideration, is he going to come to court? Is he likely to commit more crime? Is he a danger to society? When you factor all those things together, a judge, after hearing an argument from a prosecutor to keep him incarcerated and hearing an argument from an attorney to say he should be released, came up with a million dollars is enough for, I believe, if he posts this amount of money, he's not going to commit more crime. He will show up to court. 
and the public will not be exposed to any unnecessary risk. That's what I believe the judge factored into consideration when they ultimately posted that million dollars bail. That's a lot of factors. And before we go any further, just a quick correction. Correction. I believe I said Milwaukee. I meant Minneapolis. All right. I got my M's mixed up. So, but I think you knew what I meant. So Derek Chauvin was from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Awesome explanation. So do you think we need to maybe look at adjusting the bail system? Even if it just means dumbing it down a little bit so people can understand it more, or do you think it's fine the way it is? So this is where it becomes very, very, very complicated because, again, I'll speak to Massachusetts specifically. In the overwhelming majority of cases in Massachusetts, bail is not requested by the prosecutor and is not set at all. So the average defendant walking into court is going to be walking out after doing nothing but signing a piece of paper promising I will show up on my next court date and I will not commit more crimes while I'm out. That's the average case. But we all know, you know, we, we don't watch the news to see what happened on an average day. You don't watch the news to see what happens in an average, you know, an average criminal case. Bail becomes very, very complicated for the exceptional cases. And that's where you have to think about what the purpose of bail is and how can we actually reform it to accomplish our goals. Massachusetts has a very unique model in that bail is only about getting somebody to show up to court. We have other tools in the toolbox in Massachusetts. And when I say we, I mean the, the district attorneys and the prosecutors. There are other tools that you have to hold people in jail before their trial if it's necessary. And you and can what do are that those tools? Really quick, what are some of those tools? Sure. So in Massachusetts, there's a number of factors. Uh, the most common way to hold somebody in jail before their trial is called dangerousness. And dangerousness, what happens in a dangerousness hearing is if a defendant is charged with a crime that qualifies as dangerous, and that's set by statute, you know, and it's pretty much any violent crime um, is dangerousness eligible. If the judge at the arraignment determines that there's probable cause, then the defendant will be held for a dangerousness hearing. At a dangerousness hearing, what happens is the prosecutor will represent the facts of the case to the judge, the defense will represent their case to the judge, and then the judge will make a determination about whether or not this person is so dangerous that they have to be held in jail pre-trial without bail. But that's not the only option. What's good about Massachusetts, it's is not an if or, you know, it's not one or the other. After this dangerousness hearing, the judge has many options available to them. The judge can choose to find the defendant not dangerous, at which point they can then have a bail argument and determine if bail is necessary. The judge can find the defendant dangerous, but choose to not hold them in jail without bail. And in that instance, the judge can set what's called terms of terms and conditions of release. And that's a very popular term right now. And that's what we're seeing a lot of change towards. And we can talk a little bit about that in a bit. But the judge can determine, I'm not going to hold this person in jail pre-trial. However, I'm going to order that he remain drug and alcohol free with random testing prior to trial. I'm going to order that he wears a GPS monitoring bracelet while he's out. I'm going to order that he has a curfew and he can't be out past seven o'clock. Those are terms and conditions of release that the judge can impose instead of holding somebody in jail. And the goal of the judge is to find the least restrictive means the least restrictive means to ensure the safety of the public without having 
to incarcerate the defendant. And that's where they get creative with GPS bracelets with certain conditions instead of incarceration. The judge will only order the defendant be held without bail if, in their opinion, they cannot ensure the public safety in any other way besides holding this person in jail. And judges don't take that responsibility lightly. It's not a common outcome in a dangerousness hearing. I'm going to echo what John Jeffrey said. Damn, he's good. That's a heck of an explanation he gave there, Danny. That is, uh, yeah, because a lot of people don't realize that. And again, some not even some cop, I'm a veteran cop. And I knew bits and pieces of that, but I can't sit here and act like I could have explained it like you just did, because I most certainly could not have. So it's great. Well, thank you. I appreciate it's great, that. It's great that we have police officers like you with boots on the ground that understand both sides of the fence. Because, again, as somebody who's been in this, and, I, and I've done this in several different jurisdictions, different states, um, there's definitely a disconnect between the court side of the business versus the boots on the ground side of the business. Right, right. You know, sometimes I find myself scratching my head, not maybe not understanding what's going on on the other side. And I'm sure that they look at some of the stuff that we send to the court and they're like, oh, what the hell is this? And and they say the same thing. Sure. So, so it's so it's great when you have somebody that can kind of connect the dots like, like this. I'm glad that I can help. So as far as bail goes, we'll go back. We'll stay with that. Mm -hmm. When you... What's the highest bail you've seen in your in your career, either in Queens or here in Massachusetts? Uh, in Massachusetts, one of the highest bails that I've seen set was in a Superior Court case, and it was about five hundred thousand um, dollars. And it was a very complicated case. It was a case where the defendant had allegedly stolen over a million dollars, and the defendant had dual citizenship in a second country. So that was unique. That's why $500,000 was set in that case because the person had allegedly stolen a million, which means they allegedly have access to a large sum of money and they have the ability to flee the country to their second country of citizenship. So that's why dangerousness wasn't appropriate because this is solely, uh, it's a larceny case. So the person's not dangerous in the traditional sense, you know, in that, you know, they're violent, but they stole a million dollars. And it was stolen. You know, it was a pretty heinous case the way that they did it without divulging too many details of the case because it's pending. But they had allegedly stolen money from elderly people in a pretty, pretty awful way. Um, that being said, it's hard to make the argument that this person is too dangerous to society that they can't be out. But at the same time, is it likely that this person's going to come back to court, whereas they're going to be ordered to pay back that million dollars and probably go to jail for a substantial amount of time if convicted. That's where a $500,000 bail might be warranted because they can very easily leave the country and never be seen again. And they have the financial means to do it. Well, here's where I'm going to jump in on this when it comes to dangerousness. And like I promised you when we were backstage, we got about three and a half minutes left. It's flown by. That has. So I think that dangerousness, there's different levels of dangerous. There's, hit you over the head and bludgeon you dangerous. But at 44 years old, I've worked as hard as I could to kind of get, you know, like buy, buy a house and get a little piece of something in my life. If I had to start sure. that process over again, because somebody conned me out of everything I have, like to me, that 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 is a different kind of dangerousness. Like I, I don't know if I have enough time in my life that I would be able to start over again without completely devastating my family. 
Right. That's a that's a great point. Ask anybody who's been swindled out of their life savings if they feel the person that swindled them is not dangerous. And I promise you they will say they are, you know, because it doesn't represent the actual harm that these people have done. Um, but that's where, again, for the purpose of bail and bail only, it's solely to make sure that the person comes back to court. Dangerousness is another avenue that the prosecutors have to keep people incarcerated prior to their trial but there's other there's other ways that they can do it as well and you have the opportunity for bail revocation in that if the person violates a term or condition of their release or commits a new crime while they're out on bail then the prosecutor can ask the judge to revoke their bail and it you know it has the same effect the person is going to be held in jail pre-trial um, but dangerousness is tough because there's only a certain number of crimes that are dangerousness eligible. So a, a larceny over 1,200, it could be larceny over 12 billion, and it's still not a dangerousness eligible crime defined by statute. So if you're going to hold the person in jail pre-trial, it has to be on one of those other ways, bail or a bail revocation. And 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 that's the type of thing people don't understand that, um, myself included. And when I spoke to you a little bit earlier about maybe revamping the system, because these financial crimes have gone through the roof. I mean, you're a detective. You must see more of them now than you ever have seen before. And people are losing everything that they've, that they've worked their lives for. I would say the likelihood of people reoffending that do those kind of crimes, because a lot of times they're doing it through the Internet and they're undetected, is through the roof. And that's, that's a very interesting point, and it's a great point to make in the greater context of things. When you see bail reform, one of the things that comes to mind is what happened in New York and their bail reform law where they eliminated cash bail for all nonviolent felonies and every misdemeanor, violent or nonviolent. And if you're going to talk about bail reform, it's not fair to only talk about cases that bail should be completely denied for without talking about other cases like that where bail should be appropriate, but isn't now going to be allowed by statute. If you're going to talk about comprehensive total bail reform, it can't just be eliminating bail for everything. It has to be eliminating bail for cases where it truly isn't warranted, but giving prosecutors and judges the ability and the tools in the toolbox to set bail on people that are likely to reoffend and that has a little more you know, touch of reality with the devastation and harm that they've caused and potentially could cause. So I'm for bail reform, but it can't just be one sided. We have to get rid of bail. It has to be an adjustment in both directions. hundred percent. We're at time, but really quick, if I could detain you for like another 90 seconds, sure. one quick question from Aaron. So how does the bail process work? Do you get your money back when you show up for court and who is allowed to pay for bail? So this, it, she did like back in high school where they ask you one question, but it's A, B, C, D, and E. So if you could just like 30 seconds, just touch upon that. That's all right. If I didn't know Erin, I wouldn't answer this question, but I happen to like her a lot. She's a fantastic person. So I'm going to do my best. That's 94, my classmate. <laughs> so bail, as long as you show up to all of your court dates, you get the entire amount of your bail back after the case is over. Bail can be posted by you, and it also can be posted by anybody on your behalf, which has become very controversial because I think a lot of people heard about what happened in Quincy a couple months ago where the mass bail fund posted, a, I think it was a $50,000 bail for an alleged rapist, and then immediately after he was released, he was rearrested for a new rape right after the mass bail fund had posted bail on his behalf. So what happens in those instances is the district attorney can make a motion to revoke the bail 
And if you commit a new crime or you don't show up for your court date, the Commonwealth, that being the state of Massachusetts, they can seize all that bail money and that goes to the Treasury. Um, but as long as you show up to court on all your court dates, you will always get 100% of that money back, either you or the person who has posted it on your behalf. But what's interesting is even in instances where you don't show up to court and you technically committed default, the prosecutor has to file a motion to seize that money. And even when the prosecutor files that motion, oftentimes the judge will deny it. So there really is no penalty for not showing up to court at all. I see what you did there. I tell you we're out of time and you go and drop another nugget there that we could talk about for probably another two hours. Absolutely. And I got to say, fantastic job. You have exceeded my expectations. I knew you'd be great, but you exceeded my expectations. I'm getting people asking you to come back. Mike Powell wants you to come back and do another segment at some point. Would you be willing to do that? I would absolutely love to. Dean, I can't thank you enough for having me on the show. It's been a great experience for me. I hope that I've been helpful to some people. Uh, I'd, I'd love to come back anytime you'd like to have me. Dan, all the information that you conveyed today and the expert way you did it, that is that is supplying the why, what you just did there. So please, um, you know, we're gonna, we'll keep in touch and we'll collaborate. We'll definitely get you back sometime in the near future. So everybody, thank you very much for taking time away from your family to join us tonight. Uh, we got a lot more coming. So stay with us, like, share, and share our pages and our messages. And let's let's keep the momentum going here, folks. All right. So good night. And thank you again, Danny. Thanks for having me, Dean. I really appreciate it.